This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. It's been quite a week, and so much has been happening in terms of the virus, whether it is the beginning of the week, talking about convalescent plasma, whether it is more recently, talking about rapid testing, whether it's just getting our arms around where we go from here. We were just talking about reopening schools. Our go-to man, thank goodness, is back (laughs) with us, Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langham Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Ian, how are you? It's great to hear your voice. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jason. Paul, hope everyone is doing well. And uh, happy to talk about uh, testing, who we should test, what are the different kinds of tests, and uh, maybe some of the new treatments. Well, let's start with testing, because I feel like that really took some twists and turns this week, especially when it came to the CDC. Mm. Controversial, to say the least. Tell us what you heard. Tell us what you think. Sure. So uh, we should talk about, you know, what are the tests and then who should we test? Should we be testing everyone or should we be targeting our testing? So that's really sort of at the heart of this. So there are several kinds of tests. We can talk later about the new Abbott uh, test, which uh, is similar to the pregnancy test and what we use uh, somewhat for flu and strep. And that's an antigen test. We also do the PCR nasal swab test, which can take uh, anywhere from a day to several days to come back. And, of course, then antibody tests. We can talk about all of those later. But then the real question is, who should we test? And a lot of this is really based on what's called the pretest probability. In other words, regionally, are there a lot of cases or there are relatively few cases? That kind of shapes your, your pretest probability. And for some of the testing, we've had to wait five days, seven days. It makes it almost useless. People go into urgent care. They think they've been exposed. And it's almost useless to get a result back, positive or negative, because you're running around exposing other people if you're asymptomatic. So we really need faster turnaround of testing. So, And then, obviously, if it's positive, contact tracing. So we kind of think about things in a different way. If someone has symptoms, if you've got a cough, a cold, um, uh, that may be an allergy. It may be a simple common cold. Should you be tested for COVID? Maybe not, unless you think you've really been exposed. For example, if you have a classic symptom like loss of smell or taste, shortness of breath, high fever, okay, then you probably should be tested. The real question now is if you're asymptomatic, do we test everybody all the time? And if so, how often do you test them? So basically, I think we can all agree, if you're going back to school, if you're going back to work, if you're going to the hospital, if you're going to have a procedure, maybe if you're visiting an elderly relative, yes, it is reasonable to get a test to make sure you are not carrying the virus in an asymptomatic way, because you certainly don't want to expose people who are getting procedures or your elderly relative. All right. If you have, if you have a casual contact, though, should you be tested? And we can talk about that. 
All right, so doctor, I just received my first email from my healthcare provider just in the last day or so saying, okay, we are open for flu test time, uh, uh, flu shots, time to come in and get your flu shot. Should I be going in there now and getting my flu shot? Yes, absolutely. So uh, flu shots are not 100% effective as the COVID vaccine, when it comes out, will not be 100% effective for a variety of reasons. Uh, People's immune response, the virus mutates. But in general, we think flu shots are very helpful. And certainly uh, to get both flu and COVID uh, this winter would be a bad combination. That mortality rate would be much higher. So if you can reduce your risk of flu, it makes sense to do that, to take a flu shot. Absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to do it. The timing of it is also a challenge. They are available now. It is reasonable to take it now. It does last, we think, somewhere in the five to six or seven month range. So certainly if we're still having flu cases in January, February, March, taking it now, there may be some waning of the uh, efficacy of the of the antibodies. So we typically say, you know, end of September, beginning of October or mid-September is probably a very reasonable time to take it. And so how much do we just going back to testing briefly, Ian, how much do do we anticipate the sort of testing protocols will change over the next few months? I mean, how fluid is this situation in terms of the advice that we may get and the tests that are available? So the bottom line is, you know, we're we're all sort of learning about this. There's no uh, protocol. And the CDC defines casual contact, someone, you know, with known COVID, not suspected, but known COVID, as face-to-face contact that's less than 15 minutes over a course of a week or being in the same closed space for less than two hours, sort of like a a restaurant or an elevator ride. Uh, If someone has had COVID and you're in the elevator and they're not coughing and everyone is wearing a mask, do you have to be tested? I actually get these questions from patients all the time. And that's considered casual contact. And certainly if you're outside and you pass someone, you know, that's, that's a very remote likelihood. So certainly those people really may not need to be, mm-hmm. to be tested. Um, it's a very brief contact, certainly if it's outside or someone is not coughing, unlikely. Uh, And certainly, uh, if someone has uh, COVID or you're sure they've had COVID and it's been more contact than that, then it certainly is very reasonable uh, to get tested. And certainly the the new test, the Abbott test, is a faster turnaround. But we can still do a PCR test, which is very accurate, although not 100 percent, where they do a nasal swab, which is similar to the Abbott test. But this then, uh, the PCR is a polymerase chain reaction. It takes the RNA that's the virus that multiplies it so it really gives you a very sensitive right test. right all right hold that thought we're going to come back and continue this conversation because i do want to talk to you about convalescent plasma where we are on the various vaccines and much more ian les vader he is clinical associate professor of medicine he is a doctor at nyu's langone medical center joining us on the phone from new york city we'll have more with him and much more to come here on a friday afternoon you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Get right back to our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader from NYU's Langone Medical Center. So, Ian, talk to me about convalescent plasma. It uh, certainly had a moment earlier this week. How should we be thinking about that? So convalescent plasma uh, goes pretty far back in the early 1900s, really 1915 and 1916, 
uh, it was used where uh, you would take the plasma, not the red cells, and the concept of antibodies was vaguely understood. Obviously, the details were not well understood, but the overall concept was there. And that was used pretty effectively to treat some cases of measles, diphtheria, mumps, and actually during the Spanish flu in 1918. So there's a long history of convalescent plasma. Since then, we've had you know, the development of antibiotics and some more specific treatment. But for viruses, it is uh, not a bad treatment if you don't have a specific antiviral. It's not the most effective treatment. And the, um, uh, and the FDA sort of expanded use of that is based on a study group that came out that did show some reduction in mortality from 12% to 9%. Uh, in the early treatment group, meaning used within three days uh, and looking out seven days, and then if you looked out 30 days, it was a 22 versus 27%. So there was a small reduction in mortality if convalescent plasma e is used early. Regeneron and companies like that are developing more specific antibodies to the virus. So that may have more, um, uh, more impressive results. But at the end of the day, we do not have a cure for COVID-19. We have to do public health measures like, you know, masks, which reduce spread and social distancing and, and being prudent. And treatment is better, remdesivir, steroids early on for certain patients, blood thinners for certain patients, convalescent plasma, certainly if used early. And what this did was really gave permission for physicians in the hospital, if you're not doing a specific study, in other words, if you're not studying convalescent plasma, you can still use it. It would still be available sort of off-label uh, for expanded access. And I think it makes sense. It certainly does not seem to be harmful. It can, if used early, may have some benefits. So it, it does make sense. It's a very old treatment. I think we have better treatments coming along like those specific antibodies that Regeneron is working on. So I think we're making progress. The mm -hmm. rapid test by Abbott, I think, is very positive. That, that's certainly going to be helpful. Uh, it's got a good sensitivity and good specificity, not 100%, like 97 98%. But for people, for example, who are going into, uh, back to class or back to work, to do a swab, get a result back, and be reassured that most of your people are negative, and they right. can be retested. Yep. Um, that's very helpful, and certainly early treatments like steroids and convalescent plasma also are helpful. This is not the cure. It's not going to solve the issue, but it's a step in the right direction. All right, doctor, let's just quickly go there. Uh, in terms of vaccines, we know that there are a number of entities out there around the world moving uh, expeditiously towards a vaccine. If you ha what is your sense of timing when they will be available in the marketplace to really have an impact? It does look like several companies, Moderna, uh, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, are making a lot of progress. Everyone uses a slightly different technology, for example, the messenger RNA. I think by December, January, the studies will be completed, meaning I think we'll have good data that it's effective. And then it's a matter of ramping up production, which for 300 million people or even more worldwide is going to take some time. But I just, And we may need more than one vaccine, in other words, one shot and then a booster. So I think by the first of the year, we are going to be uh, fairly far, far along. 
The problem, of course, is the next few months we're going to see a rise not only in cases and hospitalizations, and there will be a rise in deaths despite the new treatments. But I think after the first of the year, if people are willing to get vaccinated, and hopefully they will, right. uh, I certainly uh, will, and looking forward to that because I'd like to reduce my risk, um, I think we will make a significant impact in the number of cases and the overall yep. hospitalizations. Dr. Ian Lusbader, thank you so much again for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective, your knowledge as we try to get smarter and more aware of this. Uh, Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, uh, joining us on the phone. So Jason, these, uh, talking to Dr. Lusbader and other experts is really critical for us to get an increase our understanding. Totally separating the signal from the noise because there's a lot of noise out there. And you know we all want to be optimistic, but we also know we need to be realistic. That's for sure. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Paul Sweeney here on a Friday. And this story grabbed my attention yesterday in Carol Masters as well when we were on the air. Uh, it's, by, it's by our buddy Josh Idelson, excuse me, labor reporter for Bloomberg. We caught up with him earlier on in the week. He joins us again on the phone from San Francisco. COVID gag rules at U.S. companies are putting everyone at risk. Fascinated by this turn. Joel Weber, editor of the magazine, he joins us from Massachusetts. Joel, I guess to some extent this isn't a huge surprise, but I have to say it, it's kind of a troubling story to read. It's, it's um, maybe not that surprising, um, but that's what makes it all the more troubling. You're right. Yeah. Um, big companies, and we're talking – Amazon, uh, McDonald's, Spaghetti Factory, just to kind of give you the, the wide variety of, of different types of businesses, are effectively make, giving gag orders to their employees to, to stop talking about COVID, especially um, if people have been sick in the workplace. And obviously what that sets up is a really dangerous dynamic where – you might work someplace and not know if the people around you are sick. That once you get the scale of this, the number of, of businesses that are putting potentially putting people in harm's way, you get a sense of just how much worse the pandemic and outbreaks might get, especially as people return to office environments and confined spaces. Josh, can you elaborate? How did you find out about this story? And and what, where are, are the labor implications that you're so good at explaining us for us on, a, on more of a societal level? Thank you. This really began as something that I was hearing about from workers and finding in complaints and other documents as I cover the workplace in the United States. And I began to see a pattern here connecting these dots. And it is something that, for some Americans, begins as unbelievable, the idea that companies would be actually trying to clamp down and silence and censor discussion of this. But in fact, hundreds of U.S. companies across all sorts of industries have allegedly told people not to share concerns about COVID or not to discuss cases of COVID or have retaliated because their workers did. And at a time when there's a lot of rhetoric about all being in this together and getting through it, it's a reminder that executives who are invested with a great deal of power in many cases are acting in ways that their employees see as not at all in those workers. Right. 
Well, and Josh, what struck me about this so markedly is that they are sort of wrapping this in this notion of like, oh, no, we're just protecting your privacy. But, you know, this sort of tension between privacy and health is is really strong here. What some people find perverse is that some of the silencing is of workers who have the virus who want to tell their coworkers about it because they don't want them to get sick. As one right. woman said to me, I don't want that on my conscience. And employees are being told by their boss that information about their health is confidential, that they, the person who has COVID, want to be sharing. Then there's also the issue of people who are told by the company that a coworker had COVID, coworker who worked the same shift of the, as them, at the Cheesecake Factory, for example, and then want to discuss it with other people but are told that that information is being restricted only to people who work the particular shift as though that's the only time that the virus might have spread. And so what we're seeing are restrictions not just on a particular employee's ability to talk about their own health, but also restrictions on the ability to talk about the fact that anyone has the virus. And this is not something that is required by the Americans with Disabilities Act or by HIPAA or any other federal law in the United States. So what, what is a, a worker, an employee, what, what are you to do? Well, there are federal laws that protect people's ability to talk about and protest about, to communicate with each other and take action together about safety and other working conditions. There are agencies that are supposed to enforce them like the National Labor Relations Board and OSHA, part of what our feature explains is that those agencies are doing very little to actually deter companies from this kind of censorship. There are statutory restrictions on the agency's ability to act. There are resource constraints, and there are currently very business-friendly appointees making the decisions about what to pursue and how. In that vacuum, we have seen other kind of Hail Marys being attempted, such as suing OSHA to try to force more action, taking up public nuisance laws, the kind of law you associate more with a noisy concert and leveraging that against a company, and actions by city and state officials passing their own standards that will make it easier for workers to actually enforce these rights that people may have assumed they had already. Well, and Josh, you know, reading your story, it also um, illustrated to me something that you've written so eloquently about in the past, which is the imbalance and the sort of power structures and the ways that uh, more evidence, I guess, that this virus is certainly uh, discriminatory to some extent in its in, in its application of in the application even of how we're trying to fight it you know that folks who are relying on a paycheck to paycheck type of existence you know maybe once again in a position of less power that's right and you know this virus has affected everywhere in the world but it hasn't affected everywhere in the same way and the way it's played out in the united states is in part because of the lack of a stronger safety net, and the lack of protections for workers against termination. The fact that people generally work at will, meaning their company 
can fire them at the company's discretion and therefore can regulate what they do, both at work and outside of work, and what they're allowed to say. And we've seen widespread examples of companies using that authority in ways that seem contrary not just to workers' interests, but to public health. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate it. It's a, it's a really nice piece of reporting. And uh, as Joel Weber nicely said, maybe not surprising, but still very troubling. Uh, it's a very detailed reporting as well, which helps you really get your arms around this pretty complicated problem as we try yep. and figure out how to get back to some semblance of normal. Josh Idelson, thank you so much. Labor reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. This story, COVID gag rules at U.S. companies are putting everyone at risk. It's featured in the newest issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. That's on newsstands now. You can also find it at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg terminal. Our thanks as well, as always, to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He joined us from Massachusetts. Now, Jason, I know you you're an avid TikToker posting uh, so videos left and right. That's your demo. Totally. Um, but President Trump is not so much of a fan. He cites some uh, uh, security concerns, and he's uh, mandated that the uh, Chinese owner close it down or sell it. Um, and it looks like uh, they are looking to sell this thing, and there's a lot of interest. Right now, the two leaders seem to be Oracle and then a consortium or a partnership uh, it's an unlikely partnership, it seems to me. Microsoft and Walmart. Matt Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Matt, let's talk about this Microsoft-Walmart tie-up. How did it come about? It's fascinating to me. Well, let's remember, the two companies are known to each other. They've been partners for the past couple of years. Walmart makes use of Microsoft's cloud platform throughout, the, uh, throughout its organization. So it's not like they're strangers to each other. And the other bit is that they, they kind of need each other in this case. Microsoft needs Walmart's uh, sort of help in terms of how to translate eyeballs into sales. Walmart, of course, needs Microsoft's uh, cloud infrastructure, as well as just its technology experience as well. So these guys are kind of, remember, Walmart has made a lot of partnerships over the past three years with a host of different companies around the world uh, in its effort to kind of keep pace with Amazon. So not unusual to see them together. But yes, the first time you heard it, everyone was kind of like, what? <laughs> So not unusual to see them together, and yet, Matt Boyle, I have a TikToker who lives in my house, and I think when I tell him that Walmart may be involved, he's going to look at me even more cross-eyed than he oh, normally does. Yeah, I've got I've got two TikTokers, and I have three now that my wife is a full convert. She doesn't <laughs> watch TV anymore. She sits on the couch and just looks at TikTok while I watch whatever I want, which is great. But yes, uh, a bit unusual. Let's remember, Walmart needs to get younger. TikTok yeah. is a way to do that. Walmart needs to build out their advertising business, their in-house ad business. Right now, so much, just about all of the digital advertising goes to Google, it goes to Facebook, and some also goes to Amazon, of course. Walmart wants a piece of that, and why not? They have long-standing relationships with all the biggest brands in the world, everyone from Nestle to Coca-Cola. Why not translate some of those eyeballs, particularly younger eyeballs, mm -hmm. into dollars? You know, the, you know, as a former analysts who looked at technology for a lot. I just don't see why Microsoft needs Walmart. They, Microsoft doesn't need them for the money. I mean, TikTok is just a, an advertising business. It's like a magazine. It's like Yahoo. It's like Google. You aggregate a big audience and you sell spots. That's yeah. it. I mean, I'm just not sure what, what Walmart brings to the story. Well, I'd love to be privy to the conversations between them. But what Walmart also brings, let's remember, is Doug McMillan and the power that Walmart has in, in D.C. as well. Let's not discount yeah, that. That's a good point. <laughs> Microsoft is no slouch in D.C., but Walmart, uh, particularly McMillan, he's tight with Trump. 
um, and they have a huge lobbying organization on top of the fact that, you know, maybe Microsoft realizes that when it comes to actually selling products at the end of the day, as we eventually move into what they're calling social commerce, you know, right now, I think it's one out of four Instagram users might be buying something on the platform. Uh, Walmart would love to see one out of four TikTok users in the U.S. <laughs> buying something and buying it at Walmart.com, not at Amazon. I do have to say, I've been amazed at the Instagram-based commerce that's happening. So the more you explain it, the more I get it. So as Matt Boyle, you and the team are looking at this and trying to game out who's got the advantage here. How does this play out and how soon, as best you can tell? Well, it seems like it's going to be fairly soon, within a week or so. Um, How it plays out is anybody's guess. Let's remember Oracle is certainly no slouch, and Oracle has ties to the Trump administration as well. Uh, Larry Ellison, of course. So um, I think we've got two very interesting bids here. Oracle obviously gives a bit more on the B2B side, where at Walmart has the sort of more consumer uh, and user connection. Um, and, you know, the numbers are talking about, what was it, $30 billion or something like that? We'll see. It's also interesting that TikTok's U.S. chief just departed. So you've got a lot of intrigue around here, and it's going to get quite interesting around the negotiating table in the next two weeks. Matt, any sense of price? I know TikTok was thinking about a $30 billion number for the U.S. business and things like that. Is that realistic? Yeah, we, we've heard everything from thir- between 10 and 30. So at, at this point, um, you know, call it down the middle. I'm not sure. It kind of depends. Could a, you know, could a third suitor come in? Alphabet was rumored earlier along with uh, SoftBank, but they seem to have backed out. Uh, so if it's just a two-horse race, it's a kind of a matter of how bad does Oracle want it? How bad do Microsoft and Walmart want it? All right. Well, that was a very interesting discussion among three guys who, at best, have an arm's length relationship uh, with TikTok. I keep thinking, Matt Boyle, that, you know, you and I would, you know, try and get a TikTok going, like looking for some Jason Isbell music. Like, I don't even know how it would work if we tried to if we tried to do something. And with my bad back, there's no dancing going on. (laughs) There you go. All right, Matt Boyle, uh, really, really glad you could join us for this. I I do truly uh, feel like I understand the mechanics and the nuances of this a lot better. U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg, Matt Boyle, as he joined us on the phone uh, from New York. Are you convinced, uh, Sweeney, that this makes sense? Um, I, I am. I think it's a great business. Uh, the, the, the metrics for this business in yeah. terms of users and, and advertising growth and, and the demographic, the young demographic, it's, it's the hot thing now. It's, uh, and you've got to leverage it here. And it's just a once in a lifetime that the government is dropping this in yeah. the lap. And if you're Microsoft, you have to get this. Uh, I think it's for, the, for other tech companies less clear, but for Microsoft, it would be great. The DC angle was one that I that's, had not that's thought of. Good. That's I had not so thought smart. That. Yeah. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, it is time for the drive to close on this Friday. Delighted to have back with us Doug Sioka, our pal, CEO, and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, joining us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. He's a guy, Paul Sweeney, who has a deep appreciation for the fitness world. So I'm not sure if he was listening to us ah, wax <laughs> rhapsodic about our uh, Pelotons, but he is a uh, he is a fit individual, as Carol Master might say. Doug, how are you? I'm well. Geez, I didn't know I was as good as you described me, so thank you. I'm even better now. <laughs> good. Um, so how are things? I mean, we always like to start by asking you, how are things looking out there? How is life uh, there in, in your neck of the woods? Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me on. I mean, and I'll give you the obligatory caveat, right? I mean, all things considered, yeah. everything's great. You know, this has been an incredibly eventful year, and we still have four months to go. Um, you know, the Midwest is absolutely on a hot seat as, as a hot spot. Mm-hmm. So we're now dealing a little more readily with a lot of the types of disruptions and interruptions that you New Yorkers long ago grew accustomed to. So, but yeah, we're getting through it really well, I will say for sure. Is it, do you feel like just staying on that for a second, like, ha, has it started to feel a little bit better or worse over the past month or so? Like, how's it trending? Uh, I think it's trending more positively, Jason. I mean, yeah. I think we were lulled into a sense of complacency and, I'm not at all indicating that that was a behavioral modification, that people took things for granted and didn't respect social distancing. We certainly have had, you know, masking ordinances in place, and unfortunately a lot of the hospitality industries are still at 25 and 50% allowable capacity. But we didn't have a surge that we had prepared for in the early part of the spring. And we deal with a lot of docs that are clients and hospital admins that are clients. And the preparation that was uh, learned across the country and exported from the East Coast and to you guys from the, the, the probably Central Europe and Central Europe from Asia, we were really ready. And I think the lockdown served its purpose. I think getting the information from the parts of the states, the parts of the country, and the parts of the world that had undergone what we hoped to avoid was very emboldening. And unfortunately, about a month and a half, two months ago, uh, we did see a bit of a flare-up one of the things that seems to be conclusive and, and widespread agreement in the medical community is the virulence, I don't know if I'm saying that word right, of this virus has dramatically diminished as it's mutated across the world. That seems to be something that people are in agreement with, and I think that what we've heard from the front line is that is the case. So I think that's a thread of, 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 of uh, incrementally positive news as we're dealing with what we're dealing with now in the Midwest. Interesting. So, Doug, love to get your thoughts here just we were talking about it with Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg stock setter. He did some analysis for his chart of the day, kind of you know breaking down the S and P 500. Basically, conclusion that hey, the bigger you know quartiles of the S and P 500 in terms of market cap doing much much better than the lower quartiles of the S and P 500 in terms of market cap. So to me, that's a lack of breadth in the market. And I remember in business school in the equities markets class, that's not a good thing. How do you, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, you know, it isn't a good thing. I think it's concerning, Paul, in so much as um, in order to sustain this trajectory, and maybe not the magnitude, but the direction, there needs to be some breadth incorporating sectors that to this point have not participated, right? And there's not a playbook for investing in a pandemic, but there's some well-written rules about sectors that tend to outperform in the presence of a recession, and true to form, right, the interest rate-sensitive defensive sectors, primarily tech and healthcare, of course, the five biggest companies and 23% of the index is tech and the S&P 500, did what we dependably would have expected them to do. They probably did a little bit better. But coming out of a recession, right, this is something that we would expect that rotation will favor 
economically sensitive and cyclical sectors. If that happens, right, we should see laggards like financials, laggards like energy, but selectively, right, because it's arguable that the entire energy complex is evolving and hopefully in a very positive fashion. But certain areas that have done nothing, that are still growing their profits or not losing, not declining profits as quickly as we had anticipated or feared, that is what we need to see for that breadth to widen to, for us to feel like there's going to be some sustainability to this recovery throughout the end of the year. Doug, you know, I feel like we've been having this debate a lot in our newsroom, and you may have heard us having it on air about the big, big tech names and sort of their disproportionate influence and, and all of that. Like, how do we ultimately reckon with that as this market moves forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that it, it, it incorporates, Jason, the growth versus value debate. Right. And as we know, that has been very disproportionate over the last five to seven years. And I think people are trying to draw corollaries. When the last time growth was this disproportionately outperforming, it was cataclysmic because it was the dot-com bubble. Or it was the first nine months of 2018 before that come up, and we saw that 19 or 20 percent drop in six weeks. I think what, what, what's, what's different now, and it's always a very dangerous way to start a statement about the market, is the companies that represent these, these technology companies that they represent are so interwoven across so many aspects of consumer, business, finance, education, transportation, communication, that we're trying to understand what the limits of their effectiveness can be in, until there is some coordinated, concerted effort to minimize their growth trajectory because technology is such an interwoven part of all of our daily existences, I'm really not sure what the stopping point is for their pronounced influence, and a lot of it very positive on our lives and then certainly reflected in their influence on the market. So, Doug, if I'm looking for performance, do I dare dip my toe in emerging markets? I think you have to. I think you have to dip your toe in emerging markets. I think you have to dip your toe into uh, small-cap value. I think there's there's not necessarily going to be the snapback mean reverting tendency. But I do think, again, consistent with that breadth widening evolution of this recovery, you want to look to emerging markets. And they've changed a lot too, Paul, right? They're no longer just commodity and cyclically focused. The middle class in these westernizing parts of the world are tilting more toward tech and consumer because the capability of, again, these gigantic large technology companies have made those things possible for those parts of the world, which represent a lot of great opportunity, and particularly if you couch that in the context of a weakening dollar. All right. Doug Sioka, thank you so much. Really nice to hear your voice. Glad to hear all as well uh, out there where you are. Doug Sioka is, of course, CEO, partner at Kavar Capital Partners, looking after about $800 million there for clients. Join us on the phone from Leewood, That's Kansas. I think that, that actually might be the absolute center of the United States, lower 48. I think it is. Yeah, I think so it is. So you get a good sense of kind of what they're experiencing. You kind of, when you think about those parts of the country, it's just – a shame they they didn't maybe learn better or the what we had to experience here I in know. New York and kind of the, the lessons we learned and they could have avoided some things um, in hindsight. Yeah, I know. It's been really interesting to watch as you look at that state-by-state state, uh, data and some of these flare-ups. And obviously, we're going to continue to watch that as we get into the fall. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.